So this morning we continue with the history of Israel recorded in the book of Ezra. It's the continuing story of their return from exile, their rebuilding of the temple, and the return to the promised land. As we enter chapters 9 and 10, that's where we are, in case you want to turn there, Ezra, along with more than 4,000 additional exiles, has just entered Jerusalem after a long, arduous journey across the desert and from foreign lands. All the returned exiles celebrate this momentous occasion by offering a great burnt offering to the Lord. And then we read, after these things had been done, the officials approached Ezra and said, Hey, Ezra, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faith faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So the officials come to Ezra to confess transgression of the law by some of the returnees. You see, marrying peoples from the foreign lands who worship foreign deities was strictly forbidden in the law. One of the very first things that Moses told the Israelites prior to entering the promised land the first time was this, he said, you shall make no covenant with them, that is with foreigners, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And yet this is exactly what some of the returned exiles had done. As soon as I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my garment from in, my, in my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Y'all, that's why you shouldn't have beards. That's why I don't have hair. Oh, wait. Here they are making a new beginning for the nation, supposedly re reaffirming their covenant with God, and they go and do this, immediately breaking one of the covenant provisions. So Ezra falls on his face, tearing at his clothes and his beard in sheer horror and mourns until the evening sacrifice, where he then spreads out his hands to the Lord and he prays this prayer. Listen to this prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is to today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by you, the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, 
but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their utter uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and, the, leave, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who have practiced these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Wow, what a prayer. You can hear in his words the desperation and the pain, the sheer realization of their national guilt and complete dependence upon God's mercy once again to keep them from being utterly destroyed. And we're told that while Ezra was praying this prayer and weeping and mourning, that a great assembly of men, women, and children from the community came and did the same. They mourned and prayed with him. And as they're mourning and praying, one of them, named Shechaniah, turns to Ezra with an idea for how they can make, make up for this critical blunder. He proposes, if, if Ezra approves, making a covenant with God to put away all these wives and children. We, we can do this, Ezra. We can get rid of them. We can promise to God that we will send all these foreigners and their kids away. And Ezra goes, well, all right, all right. And he makes them take an oath right then and there to make this covenant before God. He then continues to mourn over the faithlessness of the exiles while proclamation is made throughout the land telling everybody, all you Israelites, you need to come to Jerusalem so that we can make this covenant. And if you don't, you're in big trouble. We're taking away all your land. So, of course, everybody comes. Everybody shows up. They assemble, and Ezra stands up in the midst of a massive rainstorm. So, you know, you're outside. It is pouring, it says. It was a big rainstorm. And he says to these multitudes of people, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will, 
Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. Now because the rain was so bad, the people propose having representatives kind of stand in their place and then they say, Hey, um, this is what we can do. We can send all those people who have married foreign wives to come stand before this tribunal and you can make them put them away, vow to put them away. They agree. Process lasts several months until they come to the end of all the men who had married foreign wives. Now all of these men are listed in chapter 10, verses 18 through 43, 110 of them in all. And then the book ends. Just ends. That's it. The very last line is, all these men, the 110 that they had just listed, had married foreign women, and some of these women even had born children. The end. Well, thanks for that. No conclusion to what happens to these families, to the men, the women, or the children. No conclusion to the larger story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem or the returned exiles. The book simply ends with a list of those who have transgressed the law in this way and a promise to send their children away and their wives. And a happy Father's Day to (laughs) y'all. Who planned this? I think that person ought to be shot if it weren't me. It was me. What a message for Father's Day. You know, this passage raises a lot of questions. At least it did for me. It's a difficult section to get our heads around. But to help us to do just that, let's begin with some foundational concepts that will help us rightly interpret and understand the passage. First and foremost is understanding its literary genre. It's a historical narrative, which means this passage is a narration or a description of history, of what happened. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard us talk about this many times before. Descriptive means that something is described in the Bible. These sections tell us something that happened or what someone was like. Solomon is described as having more than 800 wives and concubines. Solomon is also described as being one of the wisest men to ever live. Then there's prescriptive. Prescriptive means that what is written is prescribed or a recommended action or behavior. The author is saying, you should live like this. Go ye therefore and do likewise. We get ourselves into trouble when we confuse prescriptive and descriptive passages. Just because Solomon was described as one of the wisest men to ever live does not mean that the Bible is prescribing for every man to go out and get 800 wives and concubines. Praise the Lord. We are never told, go ye therefore and do likewise, that you might be wise like Solomon. 
Do you remember when the Lord told Isaiah to strip down to his birthday suit for three years to preach to the nation of Israel? How many of y'all are thankful that he didn't say, go ye therefore and do likewise? Well, not very many of you. And just because the response of Ezra and the exiles is described here, it doesn't mean that we should do the same. There is no go ye therefore and do likewise here either. In fact, this seems to be a rather exceptional event, doesn't it? An event particular to the historic situation of these exiles. Now, adding to the difficulty of applying this passage to our lives is the fact that there is neither explicit nor implicit approval or disapproval given in reference to the actions and behaviors of the exiles either. The text neither sanctions nor spurns, commands nor condemns the exiles' actions in response to the sin that has been revealed. (sighs) Therefore, what the passage does do is that it forces us to examine the circumstances, the actions and behaviors of the returning exiles in light of the rest of Scripture. It points us outside of the passage itself to the whole counsel of God to find answers to the questions and issues that it raises. And so, with that foundation being laid, let's look a little more closely at some of those questions and issues. The first issue that arises is that of the sin of intermarrying with foreigners. What is that really about? Is God against people of different ethnicities or nationalities getting married? Or was there more to it? Why the prohibition? There are multiple passages that contain this same ban. I want to read some of them to you to see if we can get a fix on the why behind this prohibition. I already read the one from Deuteronomy to you. We have Exodus. 34, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Hmm, kind of sounded like Deuteronomy, huh? First Kings. The Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Hmm, Beginning to sense a, a theme here. Remember what Ezra prayed? He said, The land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lambs, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, so because of that, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Are you sensing the theme? It has nothing to do with ethnicity, but with religious purity and holiness. That is what this command is about. These foreigners with their foreign beliefs were likely to tempt the people of God to participate in the worship and practices of their foreign idols. Intermarrying with foreign idolaters could turn the people of God away from God to the abominations of these false gods of other nations. 
The issue is not one of interracial marriage, but of interfaith marriage. The issue is not one of interracial marriage, but of interfaith marriage. They were not to marry people who worship foreign idols because those spouses could lead them down the path to idolatry. To further this idea about it being about idolatry and non-ethnicity, we need only look to some people within the Old Testament. What about Ruth? Boaz was not prohibited from marrying her, even though she was a Moabite. That was even listed in this little prayer, wasn't it? She was a foreigner, but because of what? Because she worshipped the God of Israel. It was approved. And there's also Rahab. Well, remember Rahab? She became a follower of the God of Israel and married salmon, not the fish. He was an Israelite. The issue of the sin of intermarriage was not an ethnic one, but a religious one. And this same principle of the prohibition of interfaith unions carries into the New Testament. Oh, really? Yeah, it's amazing. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Does that passage sound familiar? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Hmm. You see, these exiles, Israel was an Old Testament shadow of the New Testament church. The command not to marry foreigners was this picture for Christians to not marry or be unequally yoked with non-Christians. So what is our application or applications to this? Well, number one, you certainly can date or marry someone of another ethnicity or nationality so long as they are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. That one's pretty simple, right? Did y'all get that? You can certainly date or marry someone of another ethnicity or nationality so long as they are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Principle number two, you should not date or marry someone no matter what their ethnicity or nationality if you are a, be- if you are a believer and they are not. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian, do not marry or date anyone who is not a believer. This cannot be said strongly enough. If you are in a relationship with an unbeliever right now, break it off. Is that too strong? No. Break it off. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is at odds with your relationship with this other person. I heard Mark Dever say, if you are in a position where you can freely choose, you should not freely choose to step into a life of torn allegiances by pledging to love someone who you know, according to Scripture, hates the one that you most love. Mm. Well, that got heavy quick, didn't it? raises other questions, doesn't it? So if you're already married to a non-Christian, 
like those Israelites in this passage, were married to the foreign idolaters. Does this passage or some other passage in the Bible indicate that you should then divorce them? To Ezra, the officials and the exiles, that sure seemed to be like the solution. But was that the godly biblical solution according to the law or just the best fix that they could come up with at the moment? Before we address whether their course of action was the right thing to do, I want to briefly address their motivation behind their action. What we appear to be seeing going on in the people is true contrition and repentance. True contrition and repentance. And it's a beautiful picture of revival in the nation. It really is. That is what happened to the Israelites in Jerusalem under the teaching of Ezra. They were convicted of their sin, their own personal sin, and the sin of the community as a whole. They saw themselves as a community who had offended God in their deeds and now wished to find forgiveness and to do what is right. That's a good thing, isn't it? I want to do what is right. I want to repent of the sin. It kind of looks like what we saw in that story that Kurt shared a couple weeks ago about Thomas Charles, right? And the amazing revival that took place in response to the preaching of the word. The people appear to be pierced to the heart and really want to do what is right. God's word has been received as though they had heard his actual voice. The law made them cognizant of their sin and their consciences had been made tender so that they humbled themselves confessed their sins, repented, and cried out for mercy. Oh, that that would be true of us at the preaching of the word. May our hearts be tender when we hear the word of God so that we too are cut to the heart by our sins and change our behaviors. Now, we see their repentance first in prayer and lament. They join with Ezra as he prays and mourns over his grievous sin, even though most of them had not perpetrated that sin. Well, that's bizarre, isn't it? Still, it was something that had gone on within their community that some or many of them had been aware of and yet had done nothing about. And now they have the realization that those individuals' sins can affect and infect their entire community. The blight was not only on the individuals who had transgressed, but on the entire nation of the returned exiles. Prayer and lament. Prayer and lament. These are the primary means of our repentance as well. When God reveals our individual sin or sin within this little body here at Hope Chapel, our response ought to be prayer and lament and lament and prayer. Grief and sorrow for sin and turning to God for mercy and healing. Now that I've talked about the beautiful picture of a heart of repentance that we see here, we also need to see how repentance 
can go wrong. You know, this next section is what stood out most to me as I studied this passage. When they come to this realization of the sin and the plight that they find themselves in, Shechaniah responds by saying, even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this and proceeds to give a course of action to fix what's happened. To redeem themselves and appease the Lord's wrath. This hope that he is referring to is not the covenant faithfulness of God, but their works. Hey, let's create a new covenant and we will do new works to to get God's favor back. We'll make it up to him. Later on, the whole community expresses the same mentality. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times until the first the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Their response is to try and redeem themselves by creating another covenant of works. Let's make new covenants and new oaths to appease God, to turn away his anger by making up for our sins. They have mistaken redemption for repentance. They have mistaken redemption for repentance. They are afraid of the Lord's wrath consuming them instead of his mercy preserving them. Hmm. They are afraid of his wrath consuming them instead of his mercy preserving them. And so they concoct a seemingly workable solution to the problem and try and redeem themselves. This will get all of those foreign wives and our children out of our community so that God has favor on us once again. This will make it as if the sin had never happened in the first place. How many of us have ever tried the same thing? We want to make up for what we've done to appease God. We want to fix the situation and make it as if it had never happened in the first place. That, we think, shows true contrition. We try and create a new covenant of works to make up for breaking the first one. Wrong, 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 wrong. You cannot redeem your former sins by creating a new covenant of works. You cannot make it right before God. What can wash away my sins? Ah, What can make me whole again? What can wash away my sins? And what can make me whole again? Only Jesus can redeem your sin. Only Christ can atone for your transgressions, appease God's wrath, and make you right with him. We must appeal to and rely upon the Lord's covenantal faithfulness and not our own. You know, it seemed like Ezra recognized this in the opening part of his prayer. 
He said, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, but favor has been shown by the Lord our God. That sounds familiar. We like that but God stuff, don't we? But God. Amen. There's the gospel. But God. But God has shown us favor to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Amen. But has extended to us his steadfast love to grant us something, some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection. Ezra saw the covenant faithfulness of God and their dependence upon his mercy. It was the Lord's covenant faithfulness that had preserved the remnant. And that was the only reason they had survived as a nation. But then did you notice how the prayer kind of transitioned in the middle? It's almost as if he thinks they finally crossed the line. Which line? That line. They commit this sin and you hear Ezra's disposition. And now, oh, our God, what, what are we going to say after this? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnants nor any escape? Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. It's like he's saying, you were so gracious to us, but now we've gone and blown it again. We've gone too far this time. And now there's no hope. We can't just rely on the mercy of God this time. We have to make it up to him. We have to make it up to God. We have to make it right. We have to redeem ourselves. Any of this uh, ringing a bell? You've received forgiveness for past sins, but you think that this time you've crossed the line. There is some sin that you think that is beyond forgiveness. You've done it one too many times, or it's just too big of a sin. And so you begin to concoct some kind of way in your own mind of making it up to God, appeasing Him because it's just too much to ask for his forgiveness this time. Let me tell you something. You can't and don't redeem premarital sex by getting married. You can't and don't redeem divorce by getting remarried nor by staying single. You can't and don't redeem anything. You can't and don't redeem past homosexual actions by pursuing heterosexual relationships. You can't and don't redeem abortion by becoming a pro-life 
advocate. We do not and cannot redeem our sins, but must turn to the covenant faithfulness of the Lord in Jesus Christ. We must cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. All sins, including but not limited to those that I just mentioned, all your sins are redeemed by Jesus' death on the cross alone. Let me say that again. All sins, all your sins are redeemed by Jesus' death on the cross alone. All your sins are covered by Jesus' death on the cross alone. We need His forgiveness and redemption. Cannot create our own. Another problem with their repentance is that seemingly none of them actually inquire of the Lord. Did you notice that? We see mourning and lamenting, sacrifices and confessions, but nowhere do we hear of them actually asking God how they might respond to the situation in which they find themselves. Instead, one of the leaders stands up with this half-baked idea of how to right this wrong. And when he proposes it to Ezra, does Ezra inquire of the Lord? doesn't say he does. He simply goes along with the idea and has them make an oath to keep their rash vow. Bad idea. There's something about rash vows in the Bible. Have you read that part? Now, I get it. I do. They seem to be between a rock and a hard place, kind of like our little sheep there. Here they are with more than a hundred exiles who have married foreign wives and have mudblood children. The law is clear. Some people got that, huh? I'm not going to tell the rest of you what that's a reference to. I'll get in trouble. (laughs) The law is clear that the Israelites must not marry foreign wives, and yet they have. So what are we to do with this? The sin has already been committed. They are already married. How do we remedy this situation? And the law says nothing more. Oh, come on. It doesn't tell us, doesn't tell them what to do once it's happened. It just says, don't do it. But, but we did it, so now what? Yeah, it was about like that. Air conditioning going, no. There is not a command for these men to divorce their wives or to put them away. Nor is there a law prohibiting them from divorcing or putting away their wives and their children. There is no clearly delineated path of repentance. That's why when this happens again, uh, the next generation, Nehemiah 13, they come up with a completely different way of handling the situation. Same situation. 
intermarriage, bad stuff. And they have a completely different solution to the problem. Why? Because there's nothing in the law telling them what to do. And so in the absence of a clear direction from God, they ask themselves, what can we do to get ourselves out of the situation? To rid, to get rid of these families that are a blight on our community and a reason for God to judge us. Do you get it? I get it. I hear what the hot There is no easy, readily apparent solution. It's complex and nuanced, like almost all difficult situations. On the one hand, they had the fear that God would judge the nations for the ongoing marriages of these individuals. It wasn't one of those one and done sins, was it? still married and their homes would still no doubt contain these foreign idols the perception of the surrounding peoples and nations would be that the Israelites were polytheistic just like themselves and that they would participate in the same abominations so the reputation of Israel was at stake we know that God hates when his people are regarded not as holy and he is not regarded as holy. And yet on the other hand, we have the destruction of families. And we know that God hates divorce and is clear about the father's responsibility to care for and instruct his children. Hence why we go, hmm, that's a tough decision. The rock and the hard place. What do we do? It seemed like we're darned if we do and we're darned if we don't. And so I can imagine them and myself heading down the path of pragmatism. Beginning to reason as to which will have the least amount of earthly repercussions that will negatively affect the nation and community as a whole. I want to pause here. Too bad the mic didn't break, you know, like 20 seconds later. Would have been a good pause. I want to have us think about how this so often is the case in so many situations of those around us. We are so quick to lobby our armchair opinions as to decisions that other people have made, judging them because it's not what we would have done without knowing all the details and nuances and complexities of their situation. You know, it's always possible in matters of guidance about which the Bible does not give us clear direction, where we are left to draw our own conclusions from a set of general biblical principles, that we will still get it wrong. We may have a genuine heartfelt desire to do right, seek the Lord in prayer, firmly believe that the Lord is in the matter, and still get it wrong. Any of you all smell what I'm stepping in? If it's true for you, might it be so for others too? Don't be quick to judge people's hearts or decisions in ignorance. 
Solomon says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Inquire of those undergoing difficult situations. Seek understanding. Begin with the disposition of compassion and a desire to help instead of judging on high from a position of ignorance. Enough said. Back to Israel. Their answer to this conundrum, divorce. Put them away. Get rid of them, that is the wives, and the children that are not pure Israelites. They choose the purity of the community. Now, they could have chosen to put away the entire families, husbands included, right? Send them all away from this community, thus preserving their reputation and the purity of the community, while at the same time preserving the families. But they didn't. Why? I don't know. We're not told. It was a hard situation. and Hard decisions. Let me once again remind you that this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. It describes for us what Ezra and his colleagues did. It is not a prescription for believers who find themselves in similar or not so similar situations. I remind you of this because, yes, people have indeed pointed to this passage as a rationale for divorce. And specifically as a justification to divorce unbelieving spouses. And have y'all ever played Bible roulette? And you do it until you come upon this passage. Oh, look. Oh, wow. Who knew? Because this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive, such a use of this passage to justify that is unbiblical. Now, thankfully, we have the whole counsel of God today, which is much more thorough because we have the New Testament. The scriptures have an abundance of counsel regarding marriage and divorce. We know that God hates divorce. And yet we see an abundance of scripture that regulates it. Hmm. Is divorce ever commanded in the law? Commanded in the law? Never. Not even when it's a union between an Israelite and a foreigner or a Christian and a non-Christian? No! Paul addresses this situation in the New Testament and it's the opposite course of action that they took here in Ezra. Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So whether or not they had the instructions back then, we have clear instructions now. You should not divorce someone simply, and I will emphasize that word simply, because they are an unbeliever if that person wants to stay in the marriage. 
Is divorce absolutely forbidden in the law? That is, under no circumstances is divorce ever sanctioned. No. No. It's allowed and regulated under certain exceptional circumstances, as Jesus affirmed in Mark 10. This does raise the question of circumstances, circumstances under which divorce is permissible. That subject is way too big for any sermon ever. If you have questions about it, let me encourage you to talk to the elders. But it's not just foreign wives the leaders have told these men to put away, is it? It's their children. To abandon their children and the spiritual welfare of their children, to consign them to a life devoid of God's law and worship, what happened to, and these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart, and you shall talk about them when, teach them diligently to your children, and talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You know, that came just before the prohibition against intermarriage. Fathers. Hey, we got to fathers on Father's Day, so. Fathers, your primary responsibility as a parent is provision. Material provision and spiritual provision for your children, as we just read in Deuteronomy. Don't abandon their material or spiritual welfare and hope others pick up the slack. As Paul encourages, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How you oversee that provision and how you manage and delegate its achievement in the lives of your family members will be different for each and every family given your particular circumstances. Do I need to say that one again? How you oversee that provision and how you manage and delegate its achievement in the lives of your children will be different for each family given your particular circumstances. But what a wonderful privilege and responsibility God has given us to ensure that it occurs. So there's your Father Day, Father's Day part of the message. As we conclude this sermon, this passage, and the book of Ezra, I want to address the covenant faithfulness of the Lord and how we stand firm in light of it. When we opened the book, I said it was all about the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. As we have gone throughout the book, there have been two predominant themes. The faithlessness of the exiles and the faithfulness of the Lord. Indeed, three times in this passage alone, Ezra calls out the faithlessness of the exiles. But it's about the response here, isn't it? Our response to our times of faithlessness is to stand firm in the faithfulness of the Lord. There are many in here who have sins that have a very long and enduring list of earthly consequences. Kind of like those men listed in this passage. 
sins where repentance doesn't and can't alter the ongoing earthly ramifications that continue on long after the act is done. For you, might, for you, it might have been premarital sex that resulted in pregnancy or a past of homosexuality. Maybe it was an abortion or an affair that destroyed your family or another's family. Maybe it was an unbiblical divorce or like in this passage, marriage to an unbeliever. First of all, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Though the act has perpetual earthly repercussions, it does not have perpetual spiritual consequences for the believer. It's not a perpetual sin. Just because the exiles sinned in getting married to foreigners, that doesn't mean being married was an ongoing sin. You might have sinned in marrying an unbeliever, but being married to that person now is not sinful. You are not living in perpetual sin. You may have sinfully divorced, but being divorced is not a sin. Jesus died as much for that sin as for any other sin. And there is forgiveness when you call upon him. There is forgiveness when you call upon him. There is forgiveness when you call upon him. Next. Seek repentance, not redemptive reparations with God. Repentance is lamenting your sin and then resolving before God out of a contrite heart to turn the other way from your sin and not to sin in that way again. Living in perpetual sin is continuing to repeat the same sin over and over and over without repentance, without turning. We are called to repentance no matter what the sin No matter what sin you've committed, repent before God. Pray and lament for your rebellion against Him and just resolve not to do it again. But don't seek a course of action in order to make it up to God. You can't. No matter what sin it is, no matter how massive the earthly repercussions might be, you cannot redeem yourself, which is great news. Because then you'd screw that up too. You must trust in the covenant faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ alone. That is what this book has been about. Regardless of their sin and their faithlessness, the Lord remained faithful. Despite our times of faithlessness, the Lord remains faithful. What if some were unfaithful, Paul asks. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness, well, same word, nullify the faithfulness of God? Everybody says, no. 
Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Stand firm in this truth, church. You cannot redeem your sin because Christ already has. You must cast yourself on his mercy. You must lay it in his hands. Call upon the mercy of the God of the covenant. And he will be merciful. Don't try to make it right because Jesus already has. Don't try to assuage God's anger because Jesus already has. Don't try to pay for it because Jesus already has. No matter what you've done. 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 There is forgiveness and redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the covenant that you are under, church. The covenant of grace procured, secured, and preserved by Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, wholly lean on Jesus' name. Stand firm in that. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you for your blood and righteousness. That no matter what I've done, there's forgiveness. Not by anything that I can do, but because of you. Oh, Father, what a wonderful Father you have been to us by giving us your Son to die for our sins. And give us to him. We praise you. We praise you. Praise you for forgiveness. For true redemption. May you be glorified. In Jesus name. Amen.